This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today, as part of our town hall series in partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network and Indivisible Tacoma, we speak with April Berg, who's in a very competitive race for state representative in the 44th Legislative District. This was recorded live on the evening of Tuesday, October 13th. April Berg is school board director for the Everett School District, and she also serves on the Mill Creek Planning Commission. She is running for representative in position two in the 44th LD. This is a district that includes Snohomish, Mill Creek, Lake Stevens, and Marysville. April, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's always great to talk with you. Well, it's good to see you. And you know, I will just mention for listeners who may not know that you were in a serious car accident uh, after the primary. How are you? How are you doing now? I'm doing better. Um, I tell you, folks were really generous with their thoughts, their prayers, um, support with meals, and I'm feeling uh, better. I am using a cane instead of a walker, and I'm um, able now to do a little bit more time outside of my back brace. So I tell you, the progress is going in the right direction. Well, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. And I will bring up something that you wrote on social media uh, after your accident when you were reflecting uh, during your recuperation. And you noted that if this had happened earlier in your own professional career, in your own professional journey, that it might have derailed things. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's an enormous question to start with, but I'll just ask you, how do you envision a society that better supports working people throughout their career? Yeah, I tell you, so that's, um, you're right, I wrote about this on my social media, because it, um, it really dawned on me one day that if this had been, um, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, I wouldn't have had that same successful recovery and, and really peaceful recovery time that I have now. Um, and a lot of that has to do with our social safety net and, and how we deal with things like substance abuse, um, homelessness, mental health issues. And, and we don't have the safety nets that we need for, for folks going through and struggling through those things. So for example, in my journey, you know, I'm, I've spent almost 12 weeks not being able to really be on my feet and really be active. And if I was working a shift job, if I was a shift worker where I had to be on my feet and, and show up at um, different times, you know, not having a real secure schedule, that wouldn't be possible. Um, if I didn't have health insurance like I do, um, I, that wouldn't be possible to have the physical therapy and the, the specialists that are working with me to get me back on my feet. Um, and I'll tell you just a little antidote from that night. It was, you know, it was primary night when we got hit. And one of the most amazing um, angels slash bystanders that helped me physically get out of the car and, and call 911 and, and get us where we need to be. Well, at one point she, she snapped a picture of us and she goes, you know, I'm not going to post this on Facebook and I don't want to violate your privacy, but I got to get this picture to my boss because I have to prove why I'm late for work. And just let that sink in for a little bit. Um, So imagine being in such a a situation. And I have no idea that, again, she's an angel. I I don't know her situation or scenario, but but, but to to have that level of stress to where you're, you know, witnessing and helping in this huge accident and to say, my boss won't even believe me. And and some part of my employment is at risk if I don't show proof. So that that's not where we should be, right? We're better than that as a society. So, um, I, you know, I was, I was thankful. I am thankful every day for her and her, um, you know, uh, her heroics in that situation. But I'm also just prayerful for, for whatever scenario she's in where, where that proof was needed. And it just shows that we have a long way to go and a lot of work to do there. And, you know, Absolutely. you mentioned healthcare as well. 
Um, and you noted that you know uh, you happen to have good access to healthcare, but not that not everybody does. I'll yes. just ask you because this comes up quite a bit. How yeah. do you see the pathway to a place where all Washingtonians can have access to that quality health care? Absolutely. And that's it's um, for me, healthcare is a human right. And so when we talk about healthcare, we're, we're talking about a human right. And so for Washingtonians, you know, we've we've made bigger strides than some other states, but we're not there yet. And so we got to expand the public option. We have to make that an all in option so that more people are covered. Um, we have to uh, really work on our transparency and our accountability in um, healthcare billing and processes. That's another huge, huge piece. Um, and, and then I would say, too, you know, as we're talking about it just socially uh, in society about equity, right? We're going to have another big equity test come before our society that deals with healthcare, and it's with the vaccine. And so as we're talking about healthcare and as we're talking about getting more folks covered, we're going to have to talk about not only um, a fast, effective um, vaccine that's, you know, of course, has some efficacy behind it, but we're going to have to talk about equitable solutions to make it available. And I tell you, Stephen, when I'm in Olympia, we're going to have those conversations sooner rather than later, because we all know um, where it could end up, right? I mean, this this could be another terrible, terrible scenario that we've seen for um, already marginalized communities. And yeah, this is certainly not the sort of thing where we want a, a meritocracy uh, deciding who exactly. is going to <laughs> get vaccinated and who is not. That is exactly right. Mm-hmm. I, I, I want to talk next about one of the most important parts of your platform, which is education. Uh, mm-hmm. You are an Everett school board director. We know this is a difficult time for educators uh, all up and down the, the board. I'm wondering how you are navigating the challenges of educating uh, our children during the pandemic. And I'll ask you this, not just professionally, but also yeah. because you're a mother, uh, how you're doing it personally. Yeah. And that's a great question. I'll tell you. Um, and, and I've told a lot of folks, um, you know, out there who, who've heard me talk before, but my daughter's high school was the first high school in the nation with a COVID positive student. So when it, when we talk about educating in this new normal, I had to do it first, right. As a, as a mother, but also as a leader. Um, and so that gave us some opportunities in the Everett School District, right, to, to literally write the playbook that a lot of other districts are using right now as we're dealing with COVID and, and educating, um, doing continuous learning online. So a couple of things there. You know, the first priorities was to get folks what they needed in terms of food and emergency child care, right? So you got to take care of the basics before we can take care of, um, you know, the other things. And that other thing was continuous learning. So we also want to make sure folks had hotspots and laptops so that they could have the technology they needed to educate educate their kiddos. Um, and so, and that went for my, my family as well, right? Both my girls have school issued uh, laptops <laughs> so that they can do schoolwork at home. Um, but the other piece of it too, is making sure that they are um, social and emotionally uh, cared for in this new normal. So now that we've transitioned, you know, post, uh, post spring and, and we've gone through the summer and we were able to put together a really robust plan to connect and engage with all of our kids in the district. And I'm happy to say that the majority of districts in our state are doing the same thing. So we're not forgetting the whole child, right? We're looking at all, all of the components that make um, education uh, necessary, which isn't just the reading, writing, and arithmetic, right? It's, it's that emotional well-being and that wholeness that during a pandemic is really, really difficult. So we're doing that through a lot of innovative um, synchronous and asynchronous learning, a lot of amazing online technology, but really it's a lot of uh, caring teachers and staff that are actually reaching out to kids every day, um, virtually on Zoom, telephone, whatever it takes to make sure they're engaged uh, in learning. And so the, the same goes for our household. You know, we've got 
learning times and time at the kitchen table where we're doing school or they're telling me what they did in school. Um, but I'm really making sure that I'm engaged because right now as a parent, um, and for all you parents out there, you're partners with your district. So it's it's not a, a one woman or one man show, right? This is, we're all in this together. So so make sure you're partnering with your districts and your teachers to make sure um, your, your kids are engaged. It's an extraordinary time, but I would also zoom back a little bit and just talk about mm-hmm. your time uh, with both the Edmonds and Everett school districts. And I'd love to give you the floor for just a moment to just kind of talk briefly about some of your broader achievements during that time. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for letting me say that. It's it's um, whenever I talk about my achievements in the Everett school district, especially it starts with that COVID support, right? Because that's that's what people are thinking about. And that was the most recent thing. But but there was a time before COVID um, for all of us leaders and directors. It's hard and, to believe, but there was it's a time hard to believe COVID. that there were things that we did. And, and they sound so, you know, just so, oh, you know, like, oh, fluffy and warm. But but we did uh, some of the things that I was able to accomplish um, in Edmonds was having a school garden policy. And that was really important uh, to me is to have a policy around having school gardens. It was an equity issue. A lot of our wealthier schools had school gardens and our lower income ones didn't. And it all hinged on not having a comprehensive policy. So being able to get stakeholders together to make that policy was really important, meaningful, and I'm glad to say successful. Um, the other thing, you know, while in Edmonds, I was able to increase the teaching and learning budget by $800,000. And that was huge because I really believe that we need um, teaching and learning to be at the forefront of our budgetary discussion so that we're, as we're looking at textbooks and textbook replacements, that they're on a reasonable cycle, which is right around seven years, right? So so just think of your kiddo learning a language and that language, uh, the country they're talking about doesn't have the euro yet. Right. So that's that's not that's not good. <laughs> that means it's a little outdated. So so that was another one. Um, and I'll tell you forever. We've done some amazing things, even in the short time I've been in the district. One of the things this year we were able to launch was a Spanish immersion elementary school. Um, and so having that type of choice program available for our kids and our families in our district is absolutely huge. And we did it during a pandemic. So I tell you what, the best is yet to come. We've got some amazing programs that we want to uh, be able to offer to parents in terms of choice in our district. So, um, and, and then, you know, just other things that I've done is just advocating for our homeless youth and and really making sure that um, equity and equity conversations are at the forefront. And as a little uh, preview to some discussions that we are having um, is just getting something as simple as a, a land acknowledgement at the beginning of our school board meetings, right? So, and I say simple, not to not to belittle it, but simple and like, why weren't we doing this before? Um, this is something that that every public entity should do: acknowledge the land that we're on before we start our deliberative business. So, um, so that's some of the the, the kind of feathers I've I, I think I've put in my hat when I've been on both of these boards. But I tell you, it, it's uh, it's a group effort, right? Being on a school board is a team sport. So I've only been able to make those achievements because um, I've had other directors that I've been able to get on board with me. Yeah, yeah, completely understood on that. And you you bring up funding issues. And um, because of budget shortfalls and the EFRC has adjusted them upward, but we're still looking at profound shortfalls. Uh, It's going to be a challenge funding our schools next year. And you say on your website that we need to update the prototypical school funding model. Can you explain what you mean by that and and how you'd like to change it? Well, and thank you for asking, because a lot of people kind of just kind of nod their head and go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so the, the fundamental uh, part of the, the prototypical school funding model, it's, it's how we how we allocate dollars, right? That's all it means. It's a big wonky term for how we allocate funds. And the problem with it, the problem with this model is the staff ratios, right? So this model is old. It's been updated a few times, but the ratios just aren't correct. Um, so the, the ratios of counselors, 
um, even janitorial staff, uh, school nurses, especially, it is just, you're talking like one school nurse for maybe six or 700 kiddos. And actually when I say one, I'm talking about like 0.88 school nurses for, for hundreds upon hundreds of kids. And so as we're in this public health crisis in a pandemic, is that enough nurses? Absolutely not. But is that what's funded at the state level? Yep. And is it fully funded? You betcha. Um, and that's the problem. So we went through McCleary and we got this fully funding of a model that just is, is outdated. Um, so that's a conversation we've got to have in this next session, because if, by updating the model, we're going to get our kids more services, especially during this pandemic. And I'll ask you uh, straight out, how does your approach there differ from that of your opponent? Yeah, and that's a great question. I think when um, in big ways. So my opponent is um, he's been advocating openly going back to a 2017 budget. Everything needs to be cut. Everybody needs to tighten their belt. I, and I and I I hear that right. Like it, for some reason that knee jerk, you know, cut everything. But the problem with that is the majority of those cuts are education and social services that we need most. And so when I talk with folks about the scenario that we're in right now, yes, it's a recession, but truly. It's a disaster. And when you're in a disaster, you don't go to a hurricane victim and say, hey, you don't really need that new roof. And you know, did, did you need that, that kitchen table? I, I think that's just, a, that's a luxury. No, you say, how do I make you whole? What do you need in this moment? How can we get there together? And that's the difference in approaches is that we're going to come out of this with me better than we came in. Um, with my opponent, he's looking at this dark, desolate um, view of society that really has us going back, um, you know, years, if not decades, and not just in terms of budgetary policy, but also in terms of um, social gains that we've had and in terms of hard fought uh, workplace gains that we've had. So it's, um, it's a very... Uh, looking backwards kind of approach, but but honestly, it really it hurts people and it hurts families at the end of the day. And it doesn't work. <laughs> I might just have it. And it doesn't work. I know. It, it, it's kind of like, unfortunately, right? We've tried it. 2008, we tried, We did austerity and we did the, the cut everything off. And, and now we're barely recovered from that. And now we've got another crisis. And so to cut more, it just would be inhumane. I want to shift gears and talk about your other professional capacity as a planning mm -hmm. commissioner. Um, Absolutely. And let's talk about growth uh, a little bit. Uh, during our first discussion a few months back, we heard from a Lake Stevens resident who was concerned about development in the area, uh, the impact mm -hmm. on local businesses, especially yeah. the traffic on Highway 9. So as planning commissioner, how do you balance the needs mm -hmm. of community growth with maintaining the quality of life for, for residents who are already there? Absolutely. And that's a great question. I, I always laugh because, you know, we're planning commissioners and I always say, well, we plan for it. But and it seems like one of those, uh, you know, kind of shrug your shoulders. And of course, but but honestly, that's how we do it. Right. So in Mill Creek, we're in the middle of a comprehensive uh, plan. I think it's a 20 year plan that we're updating and, and talking, of course, about growth. But as a district, the 44th is one of the um, the uh, most rapidly growing districts in the state. Snohomish County is the fastest growing county in the state. So we're all about growth. And, and and the, the key there and what I talk with constituents about a lot is embracing it and planning for it. So part of what I want to do when I'm 
in Olympia is being on the transportation committee, planning for projects that will alleviate some of the traffic headaches that we have, but it will embrace growth. Because at the end of the day, we want it just for, as that resident said, right? We want our businesses, and, and yes, we don't want the congestion with it, but we want our businesses to grow and thrive. We want small businesses to grow and thrive. We want our schools to be bigger and better, but that means we have to plan for the growth that's coming with it. Um, and so some of that is planning for mixed use housing developments on transit hubs, um, planning for more transportation, public transportation options. So um, part of it when we're talking about, you know, expanding lanes on Highway 9 and, and some different projects, one of the things I really want to make sure is at the forefront is public transportation. Because if we do that, that means we can get more people from where they from point A to point B, right, more efficiently um, and quicker for everybody else who do choose um, to do kind of HOV or single single occupancy vehicles. You're touching on this already, but I just want to kind of dig a little deeper on the affordable housing aspect yeah. of things, because I know this is also one of your key issues. Um, and this, yes. we know this is something that impacts every part of the state. Absolutely. What are the specific challenges in the 44th and, and, and how do you plan on meeting those? So specifically in the 44th, we don't have enough affordable housing. And so with that challenge comes a real reckoning with um, with zoning. And that's, again, as a planning commissioner, it's something that we we look at and we talk with citizens about all the time. Um, part of my strategy, and I can say it's been successful thus far, is, is really having conversations about workforce housing and that missing middle. So at the one end, you've got uh, market rate housing. At the other end, you might have low income housing. In the middle, you've got that workforce housing, that missing middle, where you see your entry-level firefighters, your call center workers, your folks who just came out of college with a really good job that doesn't quite pay as well as their mom and dad's job. Um, so you, so you want to say, well, how do we get those folks in our community? And when you when you talk with folks like that about the, that missing middle, they go, well, yeah, we want them here. It's not, you know, this, these are our kids. These are our grandkids. We, we want them around us. Well, great. Now, how do we talk about, um, you know, having housing that meets their needs? Well, a lot of that is, um, you know, uh, it's housing that is not single family residents. It's housing that are duplexes and triplexes, uh, mixed use developments, again, with that businesses on the bottom, and then you've got some different configurations up top, and the key there being on transit hubs. Well, now the conversation comes into really nicely fitting into a, a policy that deals with growth, but it also deals with um, alternative and, uh, and non-single family housing structures. So that's something, when I talk about it, I can kind of get, you know, folks who are kind of conservative and kind of liberal all on the same page, because they want the same thing, right? They want housing and growth, and they want more diversity, um, especially when it comes to income diversity options available for citizens. So I think we can get there because it's one it's one issue where we're all talking the same language. And you have a number of, I think, very workable approaches there. I would just ask you again how your approach uh, contrasts with your opponent. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I tell you what, we are kind of night and day on this one. Um, he is not looking for that missing middle. He's a he goes very much for that market rate housing, um, and just kind of I think uh, the quotes that he uses is you know let builders build, just let them build and let them do. And and the problem is you've got to have planning commissioners and city councils and other folks in there really working with the builders to to have common sense approaches to the reality of the demographics you're trying to serve. And the reality of that is not everybody can afford market rate housing. Um, and then the problem is when you don't accept that reality, when you don't embrace it with, with strategic planning around it, you end up with aggressive homelessness, which is what we've seen in some of our cities. Um, I'm a housing first proponent. So I believe that before we get 
folks housing, we can't take care of any other need. So again, we have to have housing to put it put folks into. Um, but the best way to to really alleviate and work on homelessness is to not have folks homeless to begin with. And so that means we have to have affordable housing at every level, right? That market rate, that missing middle, as well as low income. My opponent does not see that strategic approach. Um, and as a result, I, I, you know, we we uh, rarely are endorsed by, by folks who, um, by the same organization. But in this situation, the master builders um, and their affordable housing council actually came out and endorsed me because they said, you know, April, you know what you're talking about when it comes to housing. And even though I might not agree with those folks on, on a lot of other issues, when it comes to housing, housing and building, um, that whole, that weird philosophy that my opponent has about let builders build, they know that that's not what's working um, in today's society. And my approach is more thoughtful um, and actually more doable as we move into this next session. Well, we could keep talking for an hour and I, I wish that we could. We're, I know. We're, we're out of time <laughs> on this segment. Unfortunately, I will just ask you in closing, uh, what, what's the sort of help that you need with your campaign? Absolutely. So right now we need phone bankers. Um, so we are calling. We're not canvassing for um, because of the public health crisis. So we just need folks to hop on the phone, call their uh, call their friends and neighbors on one of our phone banks, and um, and talk to them about my campaign and of course the importance of voting. So we have phone banks running five days a week, and I'll be sure to uh, to get you information on how they can sign up. Um, and other than that, of course, donations because we are doing a lot more paid voter contact. Because again, I'm not at doors, so I'm I'm sending out a lot. Lot more mail this time. Well, it, we wish you the best of luck, and it is thank always you. a pleasure to talk with you, April Brook. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks again to April Berg. Thanks also to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julian Jievsky with Indivisible Tacoma. And that is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Thanks this week to Catherine Fisier. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.